Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On this week's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, it is my pleasure to talk with Laura Butcher. Laura is a Nevada program manager for Tread Lightly. She is the owner of Vora, the executive director of Farmies, Off-Road Park, and and a Rebel Rally competitor. Laura, thank you so much for spending some time and coming on board and uh, having this conversation with me and, uh, and doing this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So let's uh, jump right in and... I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody. Where were you born and raised? Okay, yeah, good place to start. I was born in Sacramento, California. And up until the time I was 12, I was raised in kind of on the border of two smaller towns near Sacramento, Elk Grove and Galt, California. My dad's family has a really big ranch in that area. So I grew up kind of out as a farm kid. Well, that makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. And then when I was 12, we moved to Urington, Nevada. That's that's a lifestyle change. That was a a bit of a shock to my system, but it worked out really well. Um, I finished eighth grade and all of high school in Urington. And, you know, Nevada became home after that. So, Urington, I'm very familiar with the area, of course, because we have something in common. You, you're the owner, um, along with your husband, Brian of, of Vora. I used to be the promoter and owner of Vora, um, yes. quite a few years in there. That's where I met Brian is because he raced with us, but Yearington is, it's a very, it's a very rural town, like most everything in Nevada, except for Carson, Vegas and Reno, but it, it's always, it always seemed very family-ish to me. When, I would agree with that. When we did the races there. So what was it like in Urington? It, I mean, it's such a great small town to grow up in. And I feel so fortunate that I went to high school there because I think that it being such a small community 
gave me a lot of opportunities that I might not have had going to a bigger school. I graduated with 89 kids in my class, so I kind of knew everyone, everyone knew me, and not having a ton of kids in your class, you know, has its pros and cons like anything else, but it provided me with a wealth of opportunities to participate in different activities and sports. I would say that was probably, you know, a, a big part of shaping me um, for who I am at this point, being able to be involved in, I, I was involved in FFA the whole way through my childhood. Well, 4-H, I should say, 4-H, and then FFA as a high school kid. So those were big portions of my life. But in addition to that, going to school in a small area, I did cheerleading. I was on the track team. I did high school rodeo, student council. I mean, I was involved in a lot of different things because it was a small area. Yeah, because if you would have stayed in that, say, that Galt area, I know Galt has a pretty good high, size high school. They do. My mom is from Galt and my dad is from Elk Grove. Okay. So, you know, it, I have a lot of family there. It probably would have been great. It would have been fine. I certainly didn't want to move when I was in junior high. Right. But, you know, all things considered, looking back, I think it was a really great decision that my parents made. And, you know, it the development, the character development for me was really helpful. Do you think it's because with a larger school, you have more of a t chance or you have less of a chance to shine because there's so many other personalities in a large school or, you know, to an extent. Yes. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, I think that, yeah, you, there's, I mean, it sounds bad, but there's less competition, right? So, right. you know, but those, those sports teams, they need a certain amount of kids to just to function. And when I was in high school, FFA, for instance, perfect example, the welding team, the ag mechanics team, they didn't have enough people to compete. So my ag instructor came to me and was like, hey, would you be willing to, you know, give welding a shot and be on the ag mechanics team so that the team can actually compete? And I was like, absolutely, I will give it a shot. And I worked with, you know, my friends that were already involved in that. They taught me how to weld. This group of guys became my best friends at that point, and I did really well with welding at that time and ended up, our team was scored very high within the state, and I think I was ranked like, the team was second in the state, and I think I was ranked fifth as a welder. Wow, very good. Yeah. So, I mean, that never would have happened. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you said cheerleading as well, so, you know, you were yes. a welding cheerleader? I, I was, and awesome. I was a high school rodeo queen, and I was, uh, you know, a student body officer. Like, just uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of wildly varying experiences, but it's totally been beneficial to me as an adult to have to have such different experiences and backgrounds and get mixed in in situations that I wasn't always comfortable with. So you're you're a lot like like Shelly, uh, my wife. <clears throat> Small, smaller town, lots of opportunities, um, not as much competition for those spots. So the ability to do everything. And when you're an overachiever, that's a great situation. And it, it, it appears that you're an overachiever. I was going to say, I don't consider myself to be an overachiever, but I guess it, it definitely would sound as though I am. 
my definition of an overachiever is somebody that is that is active in in a lot of different things and can still get things done. Not that yes. somebody that you're the the best at every single thing that you do. It's that you're involved with everything and you're proficient at it. Absolutely. Then I would say, yes, I qualify. I have an older sister that's a surgeon. So I tend to like, you know, that bar is slightly high for me. (laughs) Well, that's, that's a different type of achievement. It is. That's taking um, one field and going all the way to the end, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there you go. That's a kind of a good example. My sister and my brother, at least until his senior year, they went to high school in Sacramento. They went to a private Catholic school. So, you know, different backgrounds, even with that. Right. So what was the best part of, I mean, you did so much in high school. Was there anything that just really stood out that you said, you know, this was, this was really me at that time? You know, uh, I really enjoyed all the different activities I did, I would say to some degree, probably because it got me out of class at the time. <laughs> but I I already loved being outdoors and doing off-road stuff at that time. I wanted to become a park ranger at that point in time. Uh, FFA was probably the thing that I loved the most. Doing ag mechanics and all of the different offices that I held it forced me out of my comfort shell so much, like having to learn public speaking and they would put us through mock job interviews and just crazy experiences that, you know, they were tough at the time and took me way out of my comfort zone. But ultimately, they were a really good thing for me. Right. No, and and especially with all the things that you're doing now. So what sports? You said you did some sports? I did. I did track and cheerleading, and I was really, really into weightlifting. That was kind of an optional thing. Um, if you didn't want to do regular PE, you could get special permission from the head football coach to do weightlifting instead. And he was leaving with me at first. I I tried it, and then I really, really became involved in it and interested and did really well with that also. Awesome. So then let's talk. You, you mentioned off-road that you were, you really enjoyed being, and and living in that area, there's so much public land to go explore and drive and do all that. Was, were you on quads, motorcycles? What, what was it that uh, you got to off-road in? All of the above. Um, Growing up in such a rural area, even before we moved to Nevada, I spent a ton of time on ATVs, four-wheelers, Um, We had a Honda Pilot that I rode a lot as a kid. Um, I did a lot of horseback riding, just you name it, and I was outside. Great. Excellent. And we had a Jeep as well at times that, you know, my dad's friends would take us out in their Jeeps a lot. So living in Urington, Vora would come in at least once a year. Um, Did you go out and and watch the races as a family or you know, with a group of friends or anything? I did. Um, my older brother was a racer at that point in time. Uh, he got really into off-road and racing with Vora to start with um, when he was in high school and then kind of more so after. But the first Vora races that I went to were because of my brother. 
Okay. And then it, if your brother was racing and he was older, that was probably started off at Prairie City then? Yeah, he would do things at Prairie City because obviously that's the Sacramento area. We would go off-roading a lot, you know, in between in the mountains, like Pollock Pines, the Rubicon, stuff like that. Okay. And then um, the races in and around the Earrington area. All right, cool. So then high school, you decide to, uh, after high school, you decide, I, I would imagine you graduated with honors and everything. If you're, if you're involved uh, no. in all that stuff, you had to. You had to have your... I did not graduate with honors. You I graduated. Didn't. You graduated. I, I graduated solidly, but this is where like there is a stark contrast between me and my older sister because she absolutely graduated with honors and I just graduated. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on that. <laughs> yeah. So then after high school, what what was the the next step? After high school, I moved to Reno. At that point in time, I wanted to become a smoke jumper. And that sounds like, what? <laughs> but I had originally been interested in becoming a park ranger. And then I learned about, you know, wildfires and all of that stuff. My dad opened me up to the concept of smoke jumpers. And I was super into it. I applied with a school in Missoula, Montana, a smoke jumper program, and they were like, you're actually underweight. Go to college, build some muscle, get get a little more bulk on you, and then come back to us. So I moved into Reno, got a part-time job in parks and recreation with the city of Reno, and started going to uh, Truckee Meadows Community College and pursued a associate's degree in fire science and then that kind of led me into EMS as well. Okay. And through high school did you you were really busy. Did you have time to work? I did. I had a part-time job. I I worked at a livestock company, a feedlot okay. that specializes in purebred bulls, and my job was after school I would ride a horse through all of the bullpens and pull sick cows out. Okay. <laughs> and how did you know that they were sick? Um, <laughs> did they you know, raise a hoof? <laughs> <laughs> the um, yeah, wouldn't that be easy? The owners, the Snyder family, who's still really great and close with my family, they uh, they just kind of taught me one on one. Obviously. I grew up with cows, like I said, big ranching family. We had cows um, the whole time I was growing up. So to some extent, I just kind of already knew. But, you know, just through doing it with my boss, I learned, you know, how to spot the signs and symptoms of different ailments that are frequent okay. in cattle. And um, it was it was very intimidating at the time. I was more afraid of my boss than I was of the bulls. So that was kind of what kept it going for me. But I mean, these are very large purebred bulls and at times they would definitely charge. So learning to be on horseback and, and you know, identify these animals and then be able to sort them out and get them, you know, open gates and stuff on horseback. It, it was a, a challenge, but a really cool thing. Yeah, because I, I, when you said, you know, that you could identify, you know, you start to identify the the sick ones and pull them out. Every every bovine that I've ever seen has a runny nose. So is it yeah, like that's... you're looking for a dry nose then? 
You know, you're I mean. looking for a, <laughs> honestly, yes, you're right. A dry nose, um, you know, watery eyes. Sometimes it's it's hard to even like quite pinpoint exactly what you're looking for, but there's just you know ways that you can identify when they're standing kind of off, not with the other cattle that are in the pen. There's you know, just a number of like small signs, I guess, that okay. you just become intuitive about it. All right. Fair enough. It's just that it just sounded intriguing to me. <laughs> it, it is. It's an interesting thing. And a lot of times I, I would guess that, you know, it's not rocket science. They may or may not be like super sick. But a lot of times at that point, they're just getting run into a sick pin and then put through a cattle chute and they're getting drenched is what it's called. And that's basically an electrolyte vitamin solution that you're kind of forcing down their throat. But, you know, it's it's not going to hurt them either which way. But a lot of times you're looking for, you know, mucus and drainage on their eyes and a dry nose and things like that. Okay. Look, looks of dehydration is often associated. Okay. So you're working, you're going to, now you're going to college. Um, for fire sciences, yep in uh, in Reno, and did you did you work as you went to college there? I did. I had a part time job with the city of Reno in the Parks and Recreation oh, Department. Right. Okay, I loved that job very much, and uh, you know that was a really good relationship with a few people that I have been able to maintain. You know, twenty years later. And then I also started taking general ed college classes along with like entry-level firefighter classes, which after a few semesters led me to being able to test for the fire academy. Once I got in further with the fire academy, that also became a requirement that we had an EMT basic class. And then that's, so that's where you got the, the start into the EMT paramedic stuff. I did, yes. So uh, that kind of led to, after my first experiences with that, I became a volunteer firefighter in Urington just to gain some experience, firefighter EMT, and then got my EMT intermediate certification from there, and then took that and became a full-time career firefighter EMT. My first job was at the Army Depot in Hawthorne for their fire department. That's interesting. Hopefully you didn't have to fight fires there because that's all <laughs> ammo. Yeah, a lot of it um it was very interesting hazmat classes, special classifications <laughs> with the government. Um, you know, it it, it was a, a interesting first like I feel like that was my first grown-up job. It was my first like real full-time thing and I thought it was super cool cuz I was finally like a professional firefighter EMT. Right. Did you fight any fires in the Hawthorne area? I did. Um, we had a lot of wildland fires. Yeah. And um, I would say it wasn't as much like big structure fires. It was more, uh, I would say, accidents involving military personnel. At that time, they had a lot of different branches of the military training at the Army Depot before they would go overseas to like Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. And that so, tells you something, that tells you something about Nevada. <laughs> it does. Yeah. So a lot of my actual like experience on calls at that time revolved more so around, you know, mishaps, okay. so to speak. 
And it was honestly a ton of training. There wasn't a huge call volume. Okay. But that training and you're getting paid for it is pretty priceless. Yeah, it was a huge deal. I think I, I was, was I even 21? I might not have even been 21 when I started, but I was the only female on the department for a chunk of it. There was one other girl for part of the time, but then after she went on to a different department, I was it. And it was, you know, it was a really big experience. <laughs> that was a lot for somebody that age. Right. But I got the cool certifications to learn. You know, I I went through the DMV testing, got certified to be able to drive the fire trucks and fire engines and stuff, and that was a big deal. That's cool. Yeah. Every every kid, or at least most male kids, at least want to drive fire trucks. It's, it, it's, it's a, great to hear that cool you thing. got got to be able to do that. Yeah, I like I said to be. Tw- I think at that point I had just turned twenty one, so to be twenty one and get that kind of, you know, cool experience. It was awesome. So then after Hawthorne, I I saw that you ended up in Vegas for a while. Oh yeah. That wasn't quite a direct connect. Uh, Let's see. I left Hawthorne, did one full season of Wildland with the BLM. Okay. And then I started working at the emergency department at Renown in Reno while I went to paramedic school. Got through paramedic school in Reno and went to Winnemucca on an internship for my paramedic program. Okay. I was almost done with that, but I just wasn't getting enough call volume to meet the requirements for paramedic school. So I went down to Las Vegas and started working for AMR in Las Vegas. Which we all know there's going to be a lot more calls in Las Vegas. Yeah, talk about a, a shock to my system. That was a heck of a transition to make. So let's talk about that. From Winnemucca to Vegas. <laughs> yeah. My, I moved in the month of August, which was probably a terrible idea. But the lack of air conditioning in the back of an ambulance was really challenging. I just, it was like constant dehydration at first. And I remember my first day on the job with AMR thinking that people were so mean just across the board, whether it was coworkers or, you know, patients that we picked up. I was talking to my field training officer, like, I don't know this. I don't know if I can do this. Everybody's so mean. And he is like, you know what? Give it six months. You're going to be just like the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) And it definitely, you know, it's kind of the same as people say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Well, in EMS, if you can make it in Vegas, you can make it anywhere. Right. The only other place I would say is like, South Chicago or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so Doing three years in Las Vegas was like 25 somewhere else. Okay, so you did three years in Las Vegas. Wow. I did. I ended up really enjoying it. I had a partner that I became very close to. He and I are still really close. So it, that was a, a really good learning experience. I actually loved working in Las Vegas, but hated living there. And I would always choose graveyard shifts and I liked the weekends because it was a little more chaotic. <laughs> I kind of became addicted to the chaos. Right. Okay. I get that. Um, you know, that's what fighters say. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, you know, it's that, that, that adrenaline rush. Yeah. You don't, you, you stop for like remembering how to live life as what I would say a quote unquote normal person is like. <laughs> so what drove you out of Vegas then? Burnout. If I'm being a hundred percent honest, it was just the amount of, you know, stuff that working in Las Vegas puts you through. I got to the point where I was just over it and I felt like I had become pretty bitter, um, really changed a lot. And I got it in my head that I really wanted to move to Alaska. So I, and once I get an idea in my head, there's just no turning back basically. So I started really buckling down Uh, with the goal in mind that I wanted to finish out my bachelor's degree at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. That's quite the change. Yeah, I remember being, I was 25 at the time, and I told my parents, hey, I'm going to move to Alaska. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, meh, yeah, I am. (laughs) And I think everybody really thought, as per usual, just like when I said, hey, I'm going to become a firefighter. Everybody's like, yeah, okay, whatever, Laura. And then when I'm, you know, actually in the process, they're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you've actually done this. So I told my parents I was moving to Alaska. I got everything set up. And at the last minute, they were like, okay, you cannot drive by yourself. So they broke down and decided that they would make the trip to move me up there with me. So in the month of January, we drove my (laughs) 2004... Toyota Tacoma that was just an extended cab. Me, my mom, my dad, and my giant husky took a 10-day drive to Fairbanks, Alaska to move me up there. So who sat in the back? My mom and I took turns. My dad and I took turns driving, and my mom and I took turns sitting in the back sideways with my dog on top of us. Right. So I, <laughs> I see I see a, a, a pattern here. Of moving in the worst possible months. Yeah, it it just sticks. I haven't even stopped doing that. (laughs) So what was Alaska like after being in, I mean, I would imagine it was almost, you could sleepwalk through it compared to (laughs) Vegas. It, It was different. When I first got there, you know, everything was like magical. It's Alaska. It's so beautiful and picturesque and everything's very like novel. So I started going to school, working on my bachelor's degree. I very briefly worked as a bartender in Alaska, which was entertaining to say the least. But eventually I went back to all the regular fire and EMS stuff. That was really cool. A lot of really great experience. When I moved up there, I had no intentions of ever leaving. I thought, if I'm going to make a trip this big and do all of this crazy life change, it's permanent. Like, this is it. I'm staying. So I had really, like, locked myself in to, I lived in a little tiny remote cabin in North Pole, Alaska. I'm not even joking. (laughs) North Pole, Alaska, just me and my dog. And I was like, this is it. This is where I'm at. (laughs) In North Pole, Alaska. That's awesome. North Pole, Alaska. It's about 30 miles outside of Fairbanks. And what were the winters like? Very cold and very dark. The first year, I moved there in January, so it didn't seem so bad. The second year, it was like, oh, man, winter, like, starts 
basically fall is August. And then everything after that, all the way through to like May, you're looking at snow and dark, which isn't a terrible thing. I really enjoy cold weather and snow for the most part, but there would be like ice storms. I think I spent about two weeks one winter basically alone in my cabin because we had an ice storm that was so bad. Everything was, you know, kind of closed down, which hardly ever happens there. But you just couldn't, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't drive. So it was times like that that were just, I'm an introvert for the most part. So being alone was never a huge deal. But being alone for those stretches of time, that'll wear on you mentally. Right. Especially if it's dark all the time. Exactly. You're just like, it's it's like the middle of the night all the time. And you're alone. I mean, I thank goodness I had a dog, but you know, I, I was fortunate enough to make some really good friends while I was there. And I learned to kind of use them and get involved in a few other things. But my first, my first year there was rough. I would imagine the transition. Yeah, it was, it was a really good thing to make friends and, you know, develop like a routine that got me actually out of the cabin and interacting with other people. It would have been really easy to just turn into a hermit. So, so what did you do for entertainment in Alaska besides going to school and and working? Uh, let's see. I, I ran a couple of half marathons. They have like the midnight sun run that they do in Fairbanks every summer. I got really close to some friends that worked. I had friends on both the army base and the air force base that were on either side of North pole. Did a lot of just fun stuff with friends. Um, I got, really involved in a group of friends that we went to the Alaska club, which is kind of like a health club in the area all the time because it's cold and it's dark. And so you go to the Alaska club and you work out and, you know, get warmed up in a sauna, right? (laughs) Just stuff like that. You know, I went to a lot of hockey games. I really like hockey. I got pretty proficient at ice skating. That's a, that's a bonus. Yeah. Especially now that you're living back in Nevada, a lot of yeah, ice skating absolutely. there. Right? I did a lot of it this last year. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. So then, you know, you, you're planning on staying in Alaska and tell, well, here, I, I, I got to ask this stupid question. So did you put an Alaska or bus sticker on your car as you were on your truck on the way to Alaska? No, I should have. (laughs) One memorable moment from that journey, though, we were in Whitehorse is a town, a very, very small town in the Yukon. Yes. So we're staying in Whitehorse overnight. And my dad goes out to start my truck to warm it up before we get going in the morning. It is Sunday morning. It is dark. There is nothing and no one around. He takes my dog out to go to the bathroom as he's warming up the truck. She jumps into the truck. He closes the door, doesn't think about it. She steps on the door lock and locks the truck with the car running. She's locked inside and there's no one anywhere that we are going to be getting help from. And my Toyota Tacoma had a tiny little black or back slider window on the, you know, the rear window. Yeah. Uh, He ended up, what we had to do is he popped the lock on that with his Leatherman 
And I am like walking outside and stripping layers of clothes off as I'm walking to the truck because I know it's it is negative 58 degrees at this point. So I am ripping clothes off as I'm walking to the truck. And then I use here you go. My firefighter training comes in handy. I'm using my confined spaces training to manipulate my body through that tiny, tiny little window. And I get as far as I need to get to pop the lock so that we can get into the truck. And then I wiggle myself back out, which was no easy feat. I ended up with second degree burns along both sides of my rib cage, like full blisters, bruises, the whole nine yards from having to touch the metal and the glass at those temperatures. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, we we made it. (laughs) And and I would imagine your dog was was thrilled to see you come in the back window. So, (laughs) you know. She's licking my face while I'm trying to get the lock. (laughs) (laughs) In in negative 58. In negative 58. And I spent quite a bit. I mean, there were weeks during every winter I was there that were, you know, negative 40, negative 50. I've done negative 31 with no wind. And the the leather seats in my Grand Cherokee were frozen solid like blocks of ice. Yeah. <laughs> Everything, like anything colder than negative 30, it's, it hurts to breathe yes. the second you walk outside. And I would have to, I had a transmission heater, a block heater, and, you know, the whole nine yards on my truck, it would stay plugged in, but I would still have to warm it up for about 45 minutes to an hour before I could really drive. And my tires would become square. So I would drive to the nearest gas station, air my tires up in the morning. And a lot of times it was a manual transmission. This is the same truck I did the Rebel Rally in. Okay. So manual transmission, and oftentimes as I'm driving, the clutch would freeze. So I would have to shift without the clutch. A little speed shifting, yep. Yeah, speed shifting, 101. <laughs> Sink or swim. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's 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 about it's about the challenges and being able to overcome them. Yep. I mean, and I was on the younger, you know, still in my mid twenties, there by myself. I had to figure it out. Right. So talk about working as a bartender. Now, everybody always hears that, you know, Alaska, it's like two or three to one men to women. It is. (laughs) So a female bartender in Alaska, I would imagine was, um, was an interesting job. It was. Everybody called me Vegas. Like Ah. the second that I got there, everybody was like, oh, well, we're just going to call you Vegas. (laughs) Cool. That's not where I'm from at all, but okay. <laughs> but you spent three or four years there. So that's what Yeah, they, I had yeah. just moved from Las Vegas and that's what they latched on to. So and, and so when you you know, you were burned out, you were you were bitter, you get to Alaska, how long did it take you to uh to drop that Vegas burnout and bitterness? I don't know if I really did at that time, honestly. It's funny because you talk to some people at points in my life. And they'd be like, oh, my gosh, you're the sweetest person ever. You know, you're so nice. And then you'd talk to other people and they'd be like, oh, she is intense. (laughs) And I, you know, I still had kind of, I call it the urban scowl. So I I still had a pretty tough exterior at that point. Um, I mean, I'm sure I was friendly enough. I did well as a bartender. A lot, a lot of bush pilots that would come in. Um, You know, it was a good way to talk with people and stuff, but... 
ultimately, it was not something that I could sustain while I was doing school and everything else. So it didn't it didn't last long, but it was interesting. So what uh, what led you to 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 break your your idea of living, you know, staying in Alaska and heading back south? My older brother, who I was really, really close to, I would say we were best friends for most of our lives, uh, he very suddenly became sick with brain cancer. Oh. So I was, you know, it was it was like February, I think, of that year. And out of nowhere, you know, he has a seizure and he's in the hospital. And I'm feeling just like, oh, my gosh, I'm so far away. This is terrible. I can't, you know, get there fast enough. I meet up with my family. By this time, they've been transferred to UCSF in San Francisco, and he's having surgery and everything else. So we ended up staying in San Francisco for about a month. And then I went back after I got him kind of settled back at home. We moved him back in with my parents, got him all settled back at home. And then I went back to Alaska. And the six months after that were absolutely miserable because I just needed to, you know, help out with things at home. And I was still kind of on the fence about it. I, you know, it was a big investment to move up there. But ultimately, when my brother said, you know, can you can you please come home? I I came home. So he, again, in the month of January, it was so smart of me. Actually, I should say late December at that point. He flies up to Fairbanks in late December. And we load up my truck again. And the two of us make the 10-day drive back with my dog all the way back to Nevada. And we make it home just in time for Christmas Day. Well, that's nice. Yeah, it was it was a journey in itself. I mean, my truck got broken into, all of our stuff got stolen. Oh. Like, it, you know, always a wild adventure with, with me, apparently. But it it was a good trip. It was 10 solid days of just the two of us. And I'm very grateful to have had that time. So you you said it got broken into what what part where along the trip what did that happen redding california really yeah oh lord okay so they steal all of our stuff all the christmas presents and a bunch of my personal belongings my brother's um passport and everything because we had to drive through canada so along with that was like my dad's satellite phone and i was really mad about it of course so i put the phone number out there and told everybody on Facebook what happened. I'm thinking, okay, just blow it up until the battery dies. So I start calling and the guy actually answers and I talk to him and I'm like, you know, what the heck, what do you think you're doing? Whatever. And then the next time I call it back, it's actually the police. They've now found all the stuff. Oh, good. So I was able to actually like, we drove over to where they had found him and all of our belongings. And the police let me like, you know, give him a really hard time for about a half an hour and get all of our stuff back. For the most part, he'd sold some of the Christmas presents, but most all of our stuff was recovered at that point. You know, that would that would be some people's dream is to be able to get like five minutes with somebody that did that to you. They, you know, they did. With and they nobody let me, watching. They, <laughs> they did. They literally, he was handcuffed in the back of the cop car and hopefully this doesn't get anybody in trouble, but um, <laughs> he was handcuffed in the back of the cop car. And so they gave me, you know, as much time as I wanted with him. And they they said, why don't you take your dog over there, too? So 
you know, that freaked him out because he was high. But also, you know, I, I just explained to him, like, you know, this jacket that you have on, these gloves that you have on and this hat that you have on, th- those are my brother's things that you stole. And I want you to to look at him and understand that he has brain cancer and he's terminal and you took his stuff. So he's out here in the cold and you're wearing all of his things because you decided to, you know, break into my car and make that selfish decision. And and now, you know, he's without his belongings and he started crying and apologizing. And I'm like, you know, still back to Laura's tough exterior from Vegas. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But it worked out pretty well. I mean, how often do you actually get all of your belongings recovered or at least most of them? Right. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing that he answered the phone. What an idiot. <laughs> well, you know, the, there is something to be said about that in criminals, you know? I mean, right. <laughs> the smart the ones don't get caught. <laughs> yeah. But hysterical that he actually answered the phone and yeah, it worked out the way it did. So I'm sorry to hear about your brother. Um, how much, you know, if you don't mind me asking, how much longer did he uh, so did he have? They gave him seven years originally when we found out what was going on, and he lived three after Ooh. that. So he didn't make it very, like, very long. Um, he died in 2014. Okay. So I was able to move back home. And I stayed with him at my parents' house for about, I don't know, six months, a year, some, somewhere in there. And then I ended up buying a house in Earrington. I was working as a paramedic in Fallon at that time and just commuting back and forth. But it was nice to be able to help my parents. And then about a month before he passed away, I knew, well, I knew he was he was winding down. So I decided to take some leave of absence from work and I took him to one last Baja 1000 that year, November of 2013. And that was really great. We went with Loco Smokos because that's kind of our friend group that we grew up with. Right. And we did the pit there. And then um, we went and visited my sister one last time. We got to be with my nephew for his first birthday. And then we came home and, you know, by December things had gotten really bad. So I was trying to take more leave from work and they wouldn't give it to me. They said siblings don't qualify for FMLA. So I ended up quitting pretty much, you know, on the spot and just staying with him full time until he died uh, at the very end of January in 2014. Okay. Well, I'm sorry about your loss. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So then... At that point, you're you're no longer working in Fallon. Um, you know your your brother has passed. You were able to spend the time, quality time with him. What uh, what came next? Well, uh, it gets a little silly after that because I was just sort of lost in general. Um, you know, I had been friends with my husband for years. My brother had actually introduced us. Oh gosh, I want to say in like 2006 we met going snow wheeling with my brother and a bunch of his friends. I had gotten a new Jeep Rubicon at the time with my fancy fire department job in Hawthorne. And um, he didn't want me to be like alone in the car. So he decided that my husband would be the right person to put in the car with me just so that I wasn't by myself while we were all snow wheeling that night. And we became friends and stayed friends that entire time. 
So when right before my brother died, we ran into each other at a Lucas oil race. And then honestly, like within the month or so of his funeral and everything, we just started talking a lot. And shortly after that, we started dating. Um, So that was kind of the time period where Brian and I really started getting close. And I also was just over it beyond burned out with being a paramedic, I felt like I was not capable of going on calls anymore without like the emotional portion of things coming into play after my brother had passed away and everything. Because when he passed away, like he was on hospice. Yes. When he was, when he had died, he was on hospice and everything. But the day he died, it was really snowy and no one could come. So we were on our own and it just sort of left me, I would say it left me with PTSD if I'm being 100% honest. Um, and so I, I needed to step away from my career as a paramedic and I knew it. So I went to <laughs> I went to heating and air conditioning school. I went back to- I saw to, that and I was like, whoa, this is kind of a- My know. parents for a very long time owned a heating, air conditioning, plumbing, you know, repair business. So- at that point, I'm like, I just want to work, you know, with my family. So my my parents went ahead and agreed to letting me go to school in Reno yet again. And I got certified as an HVAC technician. Did some electrical, some heating and air conditioning. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. You're you're that uh, jack of all trades there. Yeah, Jack of all trades, master of none, but <laughs> it certainly has left me with just, like I said, a, a wild, varying background. And so I noticed that in the, you know, you know, I, I, I uh, looked through your LinkedIn account and things like that, and uh, to get a little bit of background, and there was like a three or four year gap, and that must be that three or four year gap. Yeah, I... I did do a fair amount of stuff with my parents' business, heating and air conditioning stuff for a little while. And then ultimately, after we got married, Brian and I decided to move back to the Sacramento area. Um, He has two older kids from his first marriage, and we needed to be a little closer to them for a while. So I went back to doing some private healthcare stuff. I still didn't want to go back to an ambulance or an emergency room. But I did work like part time in the medical field until I was really pregnant and could not do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to it after I had Grace for the first two years of her being around. Excellent. Okay. And what what year was she born in? She was born in 2015. Okay. Or 2016. 2016. Sorry. 2016. Okay. And so how? Uh... I guess the the point is now let's let's jump into the things that you are doing now because that I would imagine that all segues because you know you're spending time you know as a, a, a newlywed and having a baby and trying to clean your clear your head of everything that had happened in the past um, and then the first step is after during all that is is it Vora. So what had ended up kind of happening is one of those sort of serendipitous things. 
I was, like I said, still working part-time in the medical field, but then I got really sick. I got kidney stones and shingles, and I had to completely give up work for a couple of months until I could recover from that. And in that time period, one of the friends that I had made at the Baja 1000 pit with Locos Mocos asked if I was interested in doing the Rebel Rally with her because her partner had backed out. So on pretty short notice, I was like, absolutely, yes, let's do this. And went full gear into Rebel stuff. And that is kind of, I feel like the catalyst that sent all of what my current life is into motion because, you know, I met a lot of people doing the Rebel and formed some really great relationships, which led to right after the Rebel going to Ormhoff that year, we went to support uh, Ed Robinson as he was becoming inducted. We were still volunteering for Vora a lot at that point. And it was just, like I said, a serendipitous series of events from there. Who had, who had Vora before you guys? Um, so we were volunteering a lot when Wes Harbor had it and then Dave Cole had purchased it and it was at Ormhoff that year. Like we were just, all I wanted to do was ask Dave if I could use the Vora logo to make some retro t-shirts, but we caught him at the right time. And, uh, you know, it, it was just fate because Charlene Bauer was walking around doing the live video at that point. And Dave's like, Hey, Charlene, come over here, you know, and it's all caught on live video, you know, where he's like, I'll, uh, you know, you want the logo, but I'll do you one better and you guys can just have it. So that was pretty cool. That was a big moment. That's awesome. Especially (laughs) it's good Mm -hmm. that it was on live video. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. Dave and I go way back. (laughs) It was kind of like, this is awesome. I'm so excited. And then you get home afterwards and it's like, wait a second, where do I start? This is, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what, who to call, where to start with any of this. It was just the name. It wasn't anything more than the actual like name. There was no equipment or anything like that. Because it had kind of just like gone away. I mean, Dave used it. Yeah, it had dissolved. Yeah, Dave used it for the purpose of putting on a couple of desert races for his Ultra 4 series. And then that, you know, um, they didn't didn't care anymore. Yeah, there was a time period where John Goodby was sort of running it for him. And we went to a few of the, I would say, the last Vora races at Prairie City. And there was literally three Vora racers, if that. I mean, like, it was it was nothing. And it had all but died. Like, so I'm just, like, interested in getting the logo to do a run of retro t-shirts because we had seen some really cool ones brought back with Ed's induction into the hall of fame. Right. Okay. Then it's like, where am I going from here? Who knows? So, so did, did, um, let's, well, let's, before we get into Vora, let's talk about the rebel then. All right. That first year on Mm -hmm. the rebel, what kind of shock was that to your system? It was, it was a wild trip. I mean, Luckily, I was very, very experienced at that point. I will mostly credit Locos Mocos on this one. All the off-road trips and pit experience and stuff, the long days of off-roading and camping were no big deal for me. That was like another family vacation for all intensive purposes. 
But the Locos Mocos crew, you know, they've always been my family and they stepped up like none other to support me after my brother passed away and getting my truck ready and just everything and anything that they could do to support me, they did. They showed up in every way to get me to the point I needed to be ready for the rebel. That being said, aside from the actual truck stuff and the off-roading, I knew nothing about navigation. And I really didn't have time to prepare for any of it because I was just sort of a, a replacement player right before, you know, I think I found out about two months before the actual event. Okay. So overhauling my very old Tacoma at that point and getting everything else ready didn't really leave me any time to spend on navigation. That was, I would say, the the biggest portion of things that I was so lost on that. Right, because as a driver, and you, so that means you took the the driving portion. I of did, it, yes. Like wholly, and yeah. your partner then took over just the navigation, which can work. And but it, it, the the strongest teams are those that both players do both. Is what I see. Yeah, from my from my perspective on the rebel, um, I mean, I, we just Shelly and I just did a training session down in was a multiple day training session down in Ridgecrest, oh, and yes. and it was it was eye opening. Um, I kind of understood the navigation. Shelly did the math really well. I drive, you know, I mean, I've been driving all over the Western United States off-road for many years, always figuring out where I'm at, you know, the the years of putting on, you know, looking for and then designing Vora courses and and just exploring roads because I, I love to drive. I mean, I just, that's the best. If I can spend eight hours on the on the road, dirt road somewhere, just driving all the time, I mean, every day I would be, I'd be in heaven. <laughs> yeah. You know, going to Mexico, never, never worrying about where I'm at. I always, I always, I always knew where I was at. Well, right. when we, when we tried to do find the locations, you know, we're, we're mapping out all our waypoints and, and then trying to drive to them. I'm looking at the map and I'm instinctively going, okay, well, that's there. Right. Well, and then, you know, if we, if we, we were both working on the calculations in the first couple of them, you know, if you get one in a, you know, you have a series of 10. And you get one wrong, you, that throws off the next, you know, it throws off all the rest. Yes. It, it is such a hard thing. And and that's what I realized. Because as a course worker, I'm a rock, right? That's that's yep. our, our, our what well, we always tell you. You can't ask us questions, you know. But <laughs> I have electronics. <laughs> I know where I'm going. <laughs> Yes. You know, I'm watching the teams and I know that they, that some of them, I can look at them and go, Hey, okay. They know where they're going. And then there's other teams where I'm like, Ooh, this is going to be a long day for them. Right. How, yeah. How it's many of those days so did you have? So my partner was from, or is from Louisiana. Okay. Um, so she had quite the journey just to get out to the West coast for us to do it. And yes, we definitely had to completely split duties. Me driving a manual transmission um, wasn't going to work really for her either. So it was like all truck responsibility is for me 
all camping responsibilities, all of that stuff. And then she was solely navigation, which, you know, I would have loved to have been able to help more, but it was so, so beyond me at that point. So the first few days we did really well. And then, yeah, it got really tough. There it was a lot of pressure for her. Um, and I would say overall, like I still had a really great experience. It, it was such a life changing experience in the grand scheme of things just based off of like the relationships that I made at that point. Right. So I'm never going to be sorry that I did it at all. I love that experience. I love the other rebels. I love the staff. It is such a good thing. We did not have like a super six. I think we just finished like middle of the pack. Both times I've done it. I was very middle of the pack. That's, that's a lot. I mean, I don't remember ever having to come find you and rescue you. So. No, I'm pretty good at reading terrain, <laughs> and I, I I spent a lot of time in Baja. You know, I I worked as a pit medic for BFG some, and you know that all the loco smoko stuff. Like I said, the the off roading and the camping and reading terrain and stuff, much like you, I'm very comfortable with. Right. It was actually like you know finding the blue and black, you know, actual waypoints and stuff like that. That's where it got tough and was super beyond me. Right. I I agree with that one. I understand the blacks especially. Because there yeah. is, I mean, you're just... There's nothing. I, I don't know how these some of these teams are nailing it like they do off a 50,000th map. You know, I mean... Right. Because... <laughs> it is such a challenge. That that point that you're really looking for is smaller than your than your your dot that you've put on there from your pencil. Right. You know, that you can read. And I don't know how some of these teams are nailing them like they do. It's... Uh, Smart. They are the smartest women on the planet. And so capable. It's amazing. Yes. It's amazing. I mean, I think everybody should at least like learn a little bit more and somewhat understand like the rebel is just intense and amazing. And I, I would love to see it get more attention. It, it does so well already, but I think there's a lot of people that just don't really understand how challenging it is. Especially the men. You know, yes. the, the off-road racers, because so many of them are like, oh, there's a new competition. I can go do this because I'm I'm this great driver. You know, I've done this and this and this. The driving is, I mean, I, yes, there are, yeah, I, the sand dunes, I would say, is the number one, like, driver component because a lot of people are just so intimidated by that. But in general, the driving is nothing compared to the navigation and the rally stuff. Correct. and And that's what cracks me, especially in the first couple of years, you know, people, we'd be posting about the event afterwards or the, you know, and, and the guys were, all these racers are going, well, you know, you're just afraid of the men getting in the competition because you don't want to be beat by men. Man, those kind of attitudes just, just irked me. I, I was telling Emily, I said, let's do a reverse. Once we're down, you've already got it mapped out, right? We do it in reverse and don't give the men anything. I mean, they have to use wag bags, their own tents. They got to, you know, they they can just have the, the you know, the, the meals in the bag. Um, you know, don't give them any, <laughs> any bathrooms or showers and then see how they perform. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it is an extreme event in itself. The mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, physical exhaustion, there is no component of your body and mind that is left unscathed after that truth 
Very true. So then at that point, you do the rebel. You're, you've got Vora. Yeah. Did did Troy Robinson help at the beginning of your guys' reign with, with Vora? He did. He happened okay. to be like standing right there with us when the whole thing went down with Dave. Awesome. Um, and, you know, his immediate reaction was kind of like, well, I'm happy to help you guys, but like, I, you know, it's on you. So BJ and I were like, okay, we'll happily run with this. You know, we love racing. We love off-road. It was the biggest thing for us, a huge hobby, definitely a passion. It just was like, okay, so we have this name. Now what? Like, we don't have any money. We don't have any equipment. What are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I heard that, that you guys you guys had taken it over i was i was thrilled cuz i i knew it needed to get back in the hands of the people that that had that enthusiasm for the racing and loved the lifestyle but not necessarily somebody that was looking at it on the dollar dollar and cents side cuz every event promoter that i know and i know a lot of them that have gotten into it because you know, hey, I'm going to make a million dollars at this. Not unless mm. they started with two. Yeah, it is much like racing. It is not something you're going to make a bunch of money on. Correct. And I I thought that you guys would be a good mix. I really did. I thought that, that I thought it was going to go to good hands. And I was happy to see that because from Ed to me, I had a lot of care for it, but then just, you know, there was some things going on that, that, uh, you know, the, I don't think a lot of the racers understood that that the passion that I had for off-road in general, they they just always looked at me as the rock crawler. What's he doing over in the desert racing side? You know, well, right. Ed saw something when he came to my rock crawling events, and I think I put on really good events, but, you know, I was getting a lot of kickback. And between that and then BLM trying to uh, put the screws to me, Right. It was, you know, because I was trying to put the screws to them on the rock crawling side, and then they took it out on me on the on the desert side. I just got to the point where I said, "All right, this isn't worth doing any longer because I'm I'm going to end up shooting somebody." You know, I'm gonna, I'm going to go postal. <laughs> I totally understand <laughs> where you could be with that. Yes. <laughs> so I was really glad to hear that you guys had uh, had taken it over, and so yeah. so how is it going? It's going really well. I mean, all things considered for our current situation and our situation at that time, the way we set it up is, you know, Vora's my business on paper and everything, you know, for the actual business licenses and a lot of the admin stuff, it's it's me. Right. And BJ operates as the race director. Correct. Okay. That's kind of been the format for us. I think a lot of times people don't realize or quite get like, well, they don't understand all of what it takes to put on races, which (laughs) I know you understand, but they also don't understand how involved I actually am with it at times. Um, So that's been interesting. It's been kind of an evolving thing over the years of like people sort of thinking that it's just BJ to like it being both of us or like kind of where things get separated out. But it was kind of an interesting format. I needed to come up with money to get it started. So 
kind of came up with the idea and luckily everybody, BJ and Troy and everybody was supportive of it, created 20 lifetime memberships that I sold for $1,000 each. And that was the seed money that got everything going again. Awesome. I didn't want to go more than 20 because then I felt like I was shooting myself in the foot long term, but I still needed something to like actually get things off the ground. So it, it worked out well, luckily for me. It hasn't been like a failure by any stretch. Um, if anything, it's grown so rapidly over the last, you know, almost six years now that sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, we're trying like crazy to keep up with the growth. But all things considered, we're very lucky and it's been wonderful. And what are your car counts averaging now? Oh gosh, these days were, I would say roughly 80 Nice. at most races we've been, um, we've had as much as 125 Wow. and that made me feel like I was going to have a heart attack or a stroke right. from the stress. So, I mean, we've learned a lot. I feel like every single race we have continued to be like, well, we haven't seen this before. Okay, let's reconfigure and, you know. We've, we're really lucky to have a great group of friends that volunteer with us, and it certainly wouldn't be possible without them. It's well, It's been it, fun. That's that family. You know, the Vora was always, I mean, that's the reason I said yes to to Ed, is I showed, you know, he, he came and visited me when I was doing an event up in Donner, and then he said, you know, I, I really want you to consider taking over Vora, because if you don't, I'm retiring and it's going to go away. That's exactly yeah. the words he told me. So I said, well, let me, let me, before I say yes, you know, I'm interested, but before I say yes, let me see what you guys are doing. And it was the last two events, two or three weekends um, of racing down in Prairie City. And so I came down and just kind of witnessed what was going on and just kind of hung out. And I walked away from it saying, okay, this is another family that is that is really important. Everybody everybody's important to each other. Um you know, it, it they they need each other and they need this you know to to survive. And I said I don't want to see this go away. Well, you know, um so I said yes. And so that started that process and I think I had it for like four years or four and a half years or something like that. And then finally gave up and gave it to Kadanaway, who always wanted it to begin with, which I didn't find out until after I said yes and made the deal <laughs> with, you know, because otherwise I would have just said, no, make the deal with Dennis because, yeah. you know, but then Dennis got it, ran one event and then said, I'm done, you know, after <laughs> I gave it to him. So it was like, all right, well, that wasn't going to work that way either. So I'm. that's why I said, it's glad to see you guys are running, you know, you're running it. Um, you know, BJ is doing the race director side of it and you have a tight group of friends that are helping and run that family because that was very important at my, when I, in my tenure there, my son, you know, was still, um, you know, living at home and the, his friends helped us. And, you know, I had that, that network as well. Plus some of the racers, you know, between Sam Barry and Steve Sullivan and some of the other guys that were, you know, really important in, in keeping things running. And that was, uh, that was important. 
But as those guys all got older and everybody, you know, those kids started going off and doing their own things and getting married and doing their thing, it became harder and harder and harder to do it with less people. Right. It is. It's, it's, it's a constant battle. I mean, it takes a village to run an organization like that. Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. Any given race, let alone the in-between race stuff, it takes a lot more people. There's so much more going on than most people understand. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of mechanisms in place and, and constantly moving. It's really a thankless job. I mean, honestly, I I don't think, you know, and we had volunteered with Vora and a couple of other organizations before, and I continue to actually volunteer with a lot of the other race organizations people just kind of think that they know, like we did. We were totally naive. We thought, oh, we volunteered for a long time. We've raced. We've done all this stuff. Like we have it pretty well, like dialed on what we're going to need. No, absolutely not. We did not. I would say we still don't. I mean, does it, do you ever have a handle on it? I don't know. I've been, I've been in the game for 24 years now and it, uh, or 24 seasons, 23 years, and it's uh, you're always learning something. And if, if you're yeah. not learning, then you're backtracking. So Absolutely. So I think it does help that we've been racers before. I mean, oh, that certainly. I feel like does give a good perspective, but it's, yeah, it's a, a long-term game that you have to be strategic with. Correct. Correct. So then you're now, um, bef- before getting into Tread Lightly, what what came about and how did Farmies Off-Road Park come to uh, come together? Well, it all kind of interestingly ties together between Vora, Tread Lightly, and Farmies in some ways. What led me even to Tread Lightly was my constant difficulty with BLM permitting. <laughs> so... A little over a year ago, when it came to, you know, last, not this last spring, but the spring before that, we had our Hawthorne and Fallon races scheduled like we always do, um, but we had put them in different months, not thinking anything of it. We'd actually done it somewhat the year before, and there was no problems, but there was a newer field office manager in that district at the time, and right, wrong, or otherwise, He just was not a fan of the idea of us putting on these races. And it became like an increasing struggle between us over what was going to happen. And I obviously have very different tactics than probably a lot of other promoters when it comes to working through these things. And I guess that's worked out pretty well for me. I tend to basically, like, I will stay calm. I will still stay nice. There's not much that's going to ruffle my feathers, but I'm still going to press the issue and get what I need to get. So, you know, we would have these meetings. A lot of times I was able to work through the problems, but there came a time where we were simply not going to agree They were adamant that we not have this race. They were going to cancel it 10 days before the event, even though we'd had it at the same time, almost exactly to the day, the year before, without a problem. They had a biologist that was teleworking from another state that just wasn't sure. So there wasn't a concrete reason why other than just not being sure. And this field office manager 
was fairly new to his spot and he, I think, kind of wanted to prove himself. And it just, we had this meeting and I was very much like, you know, I had done a bunch of economic impact studies and I had put together this whole packet of like, you know, factual information. That's generally how I work. It's, I think I kind of could have been a lawyer at some point with the way I tend to approach things, but he wouldn't even open the packet. He wouldn't even make eye contact with me. And it was really frustrating. So I told him at the end of the meeting, I am going to go to our political representatives after this meeting. Would you like to talk to your boss now? Would you want to bring your boss in now? Or do you want me to go around you after this? And he was very much like, you know what? I have broad shoulders. I can take it. You know, I want to be able to talk to my boss before you talk to my boss. So no, you cannot have access to them right now. I said, okay, just so you know, when we leave this meeting, this is the course of action I'm taking. And I'm guessing that they thought I was bluffing. (laughs) But in reality, I was really lucky to have a personal relationship that some of our political figures are actually like family friends of mine. So when I was still sitting in the BLM parking lot and I called, the phone was answered. And within an hour and a half, the decision was overturned. And (laughs) I think it made some huge waves. I know it made some huge waves. But in that process, like it, it, sparked a lot of people's interest. One of the things I had done with that packet that I made for that specific meeting was I wanted letters of support, not from a bunch of organizations, but ones that I felt like would make a bigger impact. One of those was Tread Lightly. So in that process, that was how I found out they were looking to hire a state program manager. But then even so, after that race season, the city of Urington approached me and said, hey, we heard you have like a pretty rough go of it with the BLM at times. And you already used this piece of property for your Urington races. We would come through it and we had one of our remote pits there. They said, do you want to do more with that? And I was like, well, what do you, yeah, but what do you mean? And they said, well, do you want to use it more? Do you want, do you want to do something with this piece of property? We've had it for a long time. We're not doing anything with it. Are you interested? So I went and met with the city manager and one of the city council members, and we kind of talked it through. And I said, what do you guys have in mind? And they said, the sky's the limit. Put something together, bring it to the city council, show us what you want to do, and we'll go from there. So, of course, that was like an explosion in my brain. Right. And (laughs) I went like full on with researching, you know, all these different options that I wanted to take to them. And through that process, it took me a little over a year, but through that process, the city council voted unanimously that this 942-acre parcel that they obtained in a land swap with a mine, um, they were going to designate it as an OHV-specific area, and then from there, put me in charge of the management of it for them for, you know, the duration, and I formed a nonprofit. And then came back to them and said, like, you know, here's the plan. I put together, of course, a bunch of different presentations and we sort of talked about options. And I've used that nonprofit to start seeking out grant funding to be able to really start building that project. Excellent. And is that is 
I, I know I asked you this one time. Is this on the when on the east or west side of Urington? It's on the east side of Urington. Okay. And is and it is it does it encompass part of the old um landfill area? Yes. So okay. you've got Y Hill that's back there. Yep. And it's kind of like this giant if you look at it from like an aerial point of view you can really see the formation of it because it's it's a decommissioned mine and it's also been a landfill at different times many many years ago really at this point it doesn't seem like it was that long ago but it was quite a while ago in reality and you know it really hasn't held a good purpose since then for a while they entertained the idea of moving night in the country up there but there was a lot of reasons why that wasn't going to work out so it didn't move forward at that point. And it's just, it's been city property, but it hasn't served any real purpose in a really long time. And it's just sort of become like this area for underage drinking and high school parties and illegal target shooting and people still just would dump out there. So it was kind of like, well, this is sort of a win-win for everybody because this puts that property into something that's beneficial to the community and the city um, economically. It also, you know, it cleans the area up and gives it a purpose, something that's positive, that's beneficial. It's, you know, we, we're not going to have people dumping hypodermic needles and graffitiing over everything out there anymore. Like there's really no downside to it. It's a win for the off-road community. It's such a positive thing in, in all forms. So you'll use that as like a base for the for the racing and then go transition out to BLM land and then back in? Is that how you're? Yeah, it's to some degree. So there's it's backed up by BLM land, of course. And the plan is sort of to have a short course loop, a kids short course area or like a tot lot, um, learner's loop, whatever you want to call it. Then I would like to do a sort of mid-course style loop that, you know, think more along the lines of like Laughlin, right? Right. Somewhere in between short course and desert course. But then also have that with the option to be able to still include it in the desert race that goes out to BLM land. So there's also like a really great natural rock area that I would like to, you know, use for rock crawling. And I have kind of a projected map that includes a motocross track and a bunch of stuff. So it's kind of a great area for a multitude of outdoor recreation off-road events. Excellent. We'll have to take a look at that rock stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, with with Vora, are you guys racing still on the west side? Yes, we are. We actually okay. have that race coming up on Labor Day weekend, so it's just a couple weeks away. Okay, so you're you're racing there, but you don't you have you've not tried to permit the east side yet for for desert routes. Oh no, we have oh, we have, have okay. a permit on the east side and the west side. Oh, perfect, excellent. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, multi year permits on both. So very I'm solid. good, very good. That is awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. So that's the future. I hope so. It's really cool. It's going to provide also like a really great platform for education. One of the first things that I'm going to kind of 
have out there is Story County Sheriff's Office uh, needs a place to do some of their training. So, you know, for things like that or some of the kids education programs for like UTV and ATV safety, I want that to be like a place where those things can happen as well. Excellent. Are you are you looking for um well, I mean, th- this is a good opportunity because we have a few listeners on this uh podcast. If there's something that you'd like to uh to express to the off-road community um about, you know, their help or anything like that in, you know, getting farmies go, you know, to where it needs to go. Um, how do they contact you? So I would absolutely love any and all help is welcome. In my mind, this is very much going to be a facility that is for off-roaders by off-roaders um, in every way, shape, and form. So if you would like to participate or contribute to, you know, the development of this project, please reach out to me. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Um, You know, you can call me, text me, email me. There's, you can look up Farmies Off-Road Park on Facebook or Instagram and find me. Or you can use my personal account. Either which way. Even Zora. (laughs) Perfect. Well, Laura, is there anything else that we haven't touched base on? Um, you know, I still have a lot of involvement. Of course, Tread Lightly is my full-time job, and that right. ties in really well to everything. And in addition to that, I sit on the board of directors for the Nevada Off-Road Association. And those are both, like, really great things for the off-road community in their own right. And I'm very excited and proud of the way that they're all tying in together at this time. Excellent. Excellent. Glad to hear that. And uh, besides race directing, um, what's Brian doing? Um, right now, that's kind of, I, I have so many irons in the fire. Like between, I've got, of course, Tread Lightly. I've got Vora. There's Farmy Inc. and Farmy's Off-Road Park. I still help out a lot with um, Erica Sachs's Waypoint Nav stuff um, at any race that she needs it at. We've done a lot of other race series this last year. I also have been doing some contract work for other UTV manufacturers and professional athletes or race teams. So I have a logistics firm that handles that stuff. I have way too much going on. So (laughs) right now, Brian is very much helping me out with a lot of that. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. It's kind of what I try to do with Shelly now. Absolutely. It's almost... 100% 100% necessary at this point, especially with Vora, you know, and that's really his his passion. So as much as we both love it, you know, he's been around it since he was five years old, and it's where he belongs. Right. Oh, I agree. And that's That was why I was thrilled to see that all happen. Well, Laura, I want to say thank you so much for spending this time and having this conversation with me and it was it was great. I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait until until the Armhoff Gala now and uh, be able to get to talk to you some more. I'm really looking forward to it, and I so appreciate your op- the opportunity to to be on your show and talk to you about this absolutely insane life I've had. <laughs> it's <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, and uh, you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Okay, bye bye. Bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. 
If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.